The following is a presentation of the Open Door Bible Baptist Church and Pastor Chris Tice. For more audio and video content, please check us out on the web at www.opendoornj.org. Way back in Genesis 18, God made a promise to Abraham. And God said to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, Abraham. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I'm going to make out of you, Abraham, a great nation. Now think about this. Abraham's name means father of nations. And yet, 90, 91, 92, 93, all these years are passing. They're ticking away. Imagine when he walks into the local restaurant there in Canaan, and they say, what's your name? Abraham, father of nations. Hey, father of nations, how's it going? How many kids do you got? Uh, well, uh, 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 I don't have any kids. <laughs> what a hot name, father of nations. You're barren, yeah, you're sterile, and yet your name's father of nations. What a hoot. And each year, the lingering naggingness of that name was attached to him. And then one day, at the age of a hundred, Abraham has a son. Now, I've heard some Bible scholars say that that means that he was roughly R60. That's not true. He soaked his teeth in effort He was an old man, well past the years of childbearing, so much so that they named the child's name Laughter. Isaac, what a hoot! I don't know who the oldest person in your church is. The oldest person in my church is Vinnie Stravato. She's 95. I got news for you. If Vinnie Stravato's handing out birth announcements, everybody's laughing. And so Isaac comes into the world. But for this promise to continue, Isaac himself must have children. And so his wife conceives... And she has two children in her womb, two nations in her womb. And God's promise is that the younger, Jacob, will will be the master over the older, Esau. The older will serve the younger. But for all of this to happen, God has to do a major work in the life of Jacob for him to be that leader that God wants him to be. And that brings us to our text tonight. God's got to get the Jacob out of Jacob so he can bless Jacob. May I say to you that God has to do the same thing with you and me. God's God's got to get the us out of us so he can bless us. We're not blessable when we're full of ourselves. We're not usable when we're full of ourselves. We're in no position to be a leader if we're full of ourselves. So God has to get the Jacob out of Jacob in order for Jacob to be Israel. Let's examine this thought tonight from three points. First of all, think with me about the problem that we all face. The problem that we all face. When this boy Jacob is born, he is born second, but grabbing the heel of his brother as he comes out of the womb. Could you even picture that? Grabbing onto the heel. So they name him Jacob. His very name means heel catcher. What does that mean? That means if you were to, someone was walking ahead of you and you grabbed their heel, you would trip them up. 
And the idea is that you would trip them up in order to take their place, in order to supplant them in the race. In other words, the whole name Jacob carries with it the idea of conniver, deceiver, heel-catching man. In other words, Jacob wants to get what he gets out of trickery, deceit, guile. Through his own conniving, he wants to make his way in this world. And he lives up to his name. When his brother comes home famished, he says, give me a bowl of your lentils. He says, I'll sell them to you. He sells the birthright for a bowl of beans. Later on in the life of Esau, you remember how he tricks his brother Esau, dresses up like he is Esau to get his dad to bless him. And once again, through trickery and deceit and guile, he makes his way in this world. And when Esau comes back and finds out that his daddy Isaac has already blessed Jacob instead of him, his lament is, didn't you name him right when you named him Jacob? For certainly that is what he is. He is a conniver. He is a deceiver. If there ever was a child that was raised with an appropriate name, it was Jacob. What a skunk he was. And so Esau threatens to kill him. And he runs off to his uncle Laban's house. And the last thing he hears as he goes off into the wilderness is the death threats of his brother. If I ever see you again, I will kill you. And as he goes into the wilderness, he lays on that wilderness floor. Can you imagine that night of sleeplessness? in that barren, desolate place. Every screech owl must have been Esau jumping out from behind a bulrush to slit his throat. That night on the desert floor, there's a ladder that extends from heaven to earth. And God comes down to Jacob that night. And I believe personally that's the night that Jacob got personal salvation. He goes on with God, but he goes to his uncle Laban's house, and when he gets to Laban's house, he meets his match. You know, there's nothing that irritates us like people who act just like us. Have you noticed that? Probably your child that irritates you the most is the child that acts the most like you. Why do you have to, I'll dare you act like me. Maybe you in your own life, you've said, I'll not be like my mother. Only to say, oh, my soul, I am my mother. <laughs> and so when he goes to Uncle Laban's, he finds a trickster that is just like him. You remember? Laban says, you've been with me a while. Name your wages. He says, I want your daughter, Rachel. Well, what a fox she was. Good looking chick. He says, I'll work seven years for her. That's a long time to work for one woman. He worked seven years for her, and he he loved her so much, the Bible says the time just flew by. But Laban that night replaced foxy Rachel with bug-eyed Leah. I bet Jacob wished he lived in the days of electricity, don't you? I wish there had been lights that night. 
Because when he woke up the next morning expecting to see the fox, he saw, ooh, my goodness. And he was tricked. That was just the beginning of it. The Bible says that Laban changed his wages ten times. And finally, when he'd had it up to here with Laban, he takes off for home. And when he takes off for home... It's a jagged break. You remember Laban even goes after him and chases him down. And it's not an amiable separation. And now Jacob's in a quandary because he can't go back to Laban's too many hard feelings. He's got to go home. But if Laban is behind him, Esau's in front of him. And the last thing Esau said to him is, If I see you again, I'm going to kill you. So Jacob, what's he to do? In our story tonight, here's what he does. He takes out his wallet and he says, how much do I have? And he loads up all of his resources and puts the she asses and the camels and the asses and all of that there and organizes everything that he can and then divides his personnel into different stages. Okay, You, stage one, you go with these presents. Stage two, you go with these presents. Stage three, you go with these presents. And hopefully by the time all of you all done all your stuff and paid all you can and we've spread the idea out that I'm coming far enough around time, maybe he'll accept me. And so he does it. He spends all of his substance and all of his strategy And he stands there alone on the other side of the brook Jabbok that night wondering, is there anything else I should be doing? And that night, as he stands alone, having exhausted his wits and his wallet, his strategy and his substance, God shows up and God says, have we wrestled about this? Have you and I gone toe-to-toe about this? And that night, he wrestles God. Isn't it funny, ladies and gentlemen, that often we desire the blessing, but we desire the blessing our way. We desire the blessing through our own strategy, through our own substance, through our own good skill in management. Esau despised the birthright. Jacob didn't despise the birthright. Jacob desired the blessing. He wanted the blessing, but he wanted it his way, through his scheming, through his good management and skill. And so he spends what he can spend, and he strategizes with the best of his wits. And God says, How's come we've never wrestled? How's come you've never brought this issue to me? Jacob, I want to bless you. Don't you remember I'm the one who said (laughs) that you would be in charge? Don't you remember I'm the one that initially prophesied that Esau would serve you? And now you're trying to get this accomplished through your money and your strategy. You're trying to do it in every way except taking a knee and wrestling with me in prayer? Jacob, what gives? And 
oh, how often I see myself in Jacob. How often in my own life I feel that my success is contingent upon my strategy. How often I feel in life that my success is contingent upon the resources that I possess in my hands. And only as a last resort, after all my strategy is spent and all of my substance is spent, only then would I feel compelled to wrestle with God in prayer over this. And the problem that we all face, ladies and gentlemen, is simply this. We all want the blessing. If I were to take a straw poll tonight, how many of you would like to be a loser? I don't think I'd get a hand. All of us want to be successful. All of us want to be blessed of God as opposed to being cursed of God. All of us have, I think we get unanimous vote on that tonight. Even among Baptists, I think we could get a unanimous vote on that. But the problem is not that we don't want to be blessed. We want to be blessed in such a way that we can take credit for the blessing. We want to strategize. We want to spend. And only as a last resort would we even think about prayer. And after we've exhausted our strategy and after we've exhausted our substance, God meets us when we're there alone wondering, is there anything else that I should do? And God says, why haven't you wrestled with me about this? I was a senior in Bible college and time was coming close to graduation and I needed a job. Indeed, shortly after I graduated and Karen and I got married, I returned back to the campus to work at the radio station and no sooner was I back there than I was given a pink slip. They were going to a satellite network and a satellite dish was taking my job at the radio station. And I had to find a church and I had to find one quick. And I remember one day I went to the head of pastoral studies and I said, Brother Phillips, I said, I've made these contacts, I've sent out these resumes, I've made these phone calls, I've networked with these individuals. Brother Phillips, is there anything else that I should be doing? And I'll never forget his answer because it knifed me so deeply. He looked at me and he said, well, you are praying, aren't you? And oh, the knife went in six inches and it turned. Because you see, I thought success was contingent upon networking. I thought success was contingent upon my strategies, my wits. And oh, ladies and gentlemen, how often we find ourselves in that position in life. The problem that we all face is that we want to be blessed, but we think that we can be blessed by working up the blessing ourselves through our own strategy and substance. This is problematic, and we all face it. But think with me not only about the problem that we all face, think with me secondly about the pain that we all feel. The pain that we all feel. What makes this encounter so remarkable this night is that Jacob is wrestling with God. Now, I don't mean to be comical, and I certainly don't mean to be blasphemous, but God would have no trouble whipping his hind in. God would have no trouble just obliterating him off of the face of the map if he wanted to. 
Like all God has to do is just speak the word or touch his thigh and he's immediately wounded for the rest of his life. That's how powerful God is. What's God letting him know? God's letting him know something very simple. Jacob, you can't even walk if it weren't for my grace that allows you to. Anytime I desire to take you out, Jacob, I can take you out, Jacob. You're only doing this because I'm allowing you to do it. Years ago, the pastor who mentored me, Guy Templeton, was on visitation. He went into a house on Thursday night, and the family that he was visiting was watching The Simpsons on television. And they said that they were going to put their kids to bed, so they left and went to put their kids to bed in the bedroom and left my pastor sitting there in the living room watching The Simpsons. And he said in that episode of The Simpsons that Bart Simpson bowed his head at the table and said this, Lord, we worked for this food and earned it ourselves, so thanks for nothing. Now, I don't have to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, how blasphemous that is, because Deuteronomy chapter 8 is very clear that it is the Lord who giveth thee power to get wealth. You couldn't even go out, get out of bed and go to work in the morning if God's grace did not allow it. You see, Esau despised the blessing. Jacob desired the blessing. But ladies and gentlemen, if the blessing is to come the right way, the blessing's got to come from God. But if we would have that blessing, it does not come easily and it does not come cheaply. We must wrestle God for it. Now don't miss it. God is the aggressor in the story. God starts the fight. God picks the fight. Why would God pick a fight? Why is God so dangerous on the playground? Why does God so engage us? So we'll hang on to him. You know, you don't hang on to God when you're healthy, do you? When you think you can stand on your own two feet, there's no need to hang on to God. But when you're crippled, You need God. You hang on to Him for even the ability to stand. Somebody say Christianity is a crutch. Well, that's not bad if you're crippled. You see, we all need God. And the problem is, is that often we don't recognize our need of God, so God has to engage us in the fight and bring some pain to our life. And in bringing our pain to our life, it is only in those moments of pain that we recognize our need of Him. How important this is. I think of Muhammad Ali. When I was a kid, I used to love boxing, and Muhammad Ali was one of my favorite boxers. Muhammad Ali was a good boxer. And you know, the funny thing about it is, when Muhammad Ali was pummeling somebody, the way they tried to avoid getting pummeled was hanging on to him. You ever seen a boxing match where somebody's hanging on to the boxer so the boxer won't kill him? You know, the only effective way of running from God is to run to Him. The more you distance and see yourself from God, the more you're going to get pummeled. (laughs) So the way to avoid getting pummeled is to hang on to Him. And God brings pain to our life so that we will hang on to Him. If you've got a toddler, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I don't know what it is. From six months to two years old, I love every six-month-year-old to two-year-old kid. You know, the funny thing about it is they don't love me as much as I love them. 
I don't know how many times I go up to church with a young family. I say, come see pastor. Hung it on the mom. And the mom will say, go see pastor. Go see pastor. I don't want to see pastor. (laughs) Hang them up. And you know, even though they're pushing away, I'm hanging on to them. I'm actually wrestling them for intimacy. You've ever wrestled with your two-year-old on the couch? You know what I'm talking about. You throw them on the couch, you lob them in their stomach and bite them and chew them up. And oh, it's a great thing, isn't it? To wrestle a little kid for intimacy. Ladies and gentlemen, may I say that God is wrestling you and I for intimacy. God wants us to hang on to him. This is why he engages us in the fight. God wants us to wrestle for the victory. And this is the very nature of prayer. Go over to Colossians chapter 4. Hold your place here in Genesis 32. Flip over to Colossians chapter 4. Look at verse 12. The Bible says in Colossians chapter 4, verse number 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in... Now, if I was... Think about this. Let's talk about the people who really work at Open Door Baptist Church. The people who fervently labor in the nursery. No doubt. I mean, what would you say is the most fervent laboring portion of this church? When he says here that Epaphras laboreth fervently in If I was writing this, I probably would have said something else besides prayer. But prayer is exactly the thing that he says he's fervently laboring in, suggesting to us that prayer's not easy. Prayer is hard work. There are no shortcuts to prayer. There's no cliff notes for prayer. You can't go to Barnes & Noble and find praying for dummies. There's no shortcuts to this, ladies and gentlemen. Prayer is hard work. Prayer is wrestling. Prayer is hanging on to God and saying, God, I will not let you go until you bless me. We need to learn what it means to wrestle with God in prayer. The problem in most of our lives is we're looking for shortcuts in prayer. We're looking for some way to make prayer easy, and prayer never will be easy. It is a fervent, laboring exercise. Prayer will always be difficult, but this is the cost of intimacy with God. I heard a lady say one time that she'd been married for nearly 50 years and she and her husband had never fought. Excuse me, I just don't believe it. If they got a good marriage, I don't believe it. I believe that good marriages have fights. Why? Because I believe intimacy always involves fighting. You have to fight for intimacy. You have to fight for intimacy. Years ago, there was a missionary family that was close to us. They were on the field and they had to come home because the man in this missionary family was writing intimate letters. There was no adultery or anything like that, but he was writing intimate letters to a teenage girl. The wife found these letters and unearthed them to the mission board and they had to come home for counseling and correction and restoration. 
They had to see a variety of counselors, and one of the variety of counselors that they saw was myself. And I'll never forget what the wife said at my kitchen table in my wife and my presence. She said concerning her husband, he doesn't know who he's dealing with, but I'm not giving up on this marriage that easy. He's stuck with me. Amen. You know what she's saying? She's saying intimacy requires a fight, and brother, I'm bringing it. That's what she's saying. Is it any wonder, therefore, that Timothy Chester, in his book on prayer, calls prayer the domestic reality? I love that statement. Prayer is the domestic reality. There is no way that we can have intimacy with God unless we choose to wrestle with Him in prayer. There is no way that God could be a household friend of ours without the battle for intimacy taking place. So there's no way. There is no way that you and I can have a vibrant relationship with God without feeling the pain of wrestling with him in prayer. And that's why at times God brings pain into our life so that we will cling to him yet the more and say, God, I will not let you go until you bless me. The problem we face is we want success without it. The problem, the pain that we feel is that there's a cost to this intimacy. Now notice finally the prize that we all find. The prize that we all find. When this wrestling match is over, Jacob receives a new name. God changes his name here on this spot to Israel, a man who has power with both God and man, one who has struggled with man and God and has overcome. The victory to live effectively is found when you and I are assaulted by God. Victory is found only in those moments when I choose, I deliberately choose to wrestle with him. And that is where my power is found. It is found in that prayer time and it is found to have power both with God and with men. I love it. Now imagine this. On this wrestling match, God asked Jacob his name. What's your name? Imagine that. If you had a name that you were embarrassed by, how would you respond? What's your name? Jacob. Uh, Excuse me? Jacob. I can't hear you. Jacob. Oh, how's it going, schemer? How's it going, heel-catching man? Supplanter? Cheat? Fraud? How's it going? He's forced to admit that night who he is. He's nothing more than Jacob. He's nothing more than a deceiver, a conniver, a schemer. That's all he is. His whole life he's been a conniver. He connived his blind father. He connived his aggressive, hard-working brother. He connived his uncle Laban over and over and over again. His life has been characterized by deception. But from this moment on, he's got new identity. Now he has a success, and this success is not found in his scheming. This success is found in his Savior. Okay, here's our theme. Hope is not found in your scheming. Hope is found in your Savior. 
And so when Jacob crosses the brook Jabbok that night, as he limps through the water of Jabbok that night, he does so as a new man. And he does so as a new man because he has been with God and talked to him and battled with him face to face. Now, what's the result of all of this? Go to chapter 33 of Genesis, chapter 33, and look at verse 10. This is an interesting statement to me. The Bible says in Genesis 33, verse 10, And Jacob said, Nay, I pray thee, if now I have found grace in thy sight, then receive my present in my hand, for therefore have I seen thy face as though I had seen the face of God, and thou wast pleased with me. Jacob sees in his brother Esau the face of God. I don't think if you'd look up godly in the dictionary, you'd find Esau's picture there. So what does he mean when he says that he sees in Esau's face the face of God? Here's what I think he means. He's saying, Esau, all this while I really thought my problem was you, but my problem wasn't you, my problem was God. All right, I'm not asking for a show of hands. I'm certainly not asking for verbal articulation tonight. But who in your mind would your life be better if God just took them out? If Aunt Nabal was gone, happy days would be here again. Joyce Landorf says that everybody has an irritable person. The person whose mere presence is like fingernails on the chalkboard or rubbing the cat the wrong way. And you think in your life, oh, if there were no Esau, get me and get me well. For whoever your Esau is, your problem's not with Esau. Your problem's with God. That's who your problem's with. You see, we often think that our battle is a flesh and blood battle. It is not a flesh and blood battle. We do not battle against flesh and blood. The Bible is very clear about that. He has been fighting a spiritual battle with the divine. And I think this, he was fighting his brother to avoid fighting God. You think, well, I'm going to wrestle all these people. You don't have to wrestle those people. You've got to wrestle God. And if you wrestle God, the wrestling with those people becomes completely immaterial. Because why? Once you wrestle with God... You got power with God and with men. Woo, deal with that. Who knows what problems he could have avoided if he'd have just prayed? Come on, class. Good night. Before he was even born, God said, I'm going to let you have a blessing. Before he was even born, God said, Esau's going to serve you. No one was more anxious to give him the blessing than God was. God was the one who instigated this whole idea. You think God didn't want to give him the blessing? It was God's idea that he had the blessing. 
So he didn't want to wrestle God for it. So he decided to wrestle Isaac and Rebekah and Esau and Laban. How many fights in our life were completely unnecessary because we didn't fight with God first? How many fights could have been avoided? If he had got on his knees instead of pasting lambskin over himself, he would never have had to run for his life. He would have never heard the death threats of his brother. He never would have been huckstered by Laban and spent all of that grief. Did he not believe that God could give him what God had promised he would give him? No, we got to duke it out with everybody. What happens? There is a peace we often forfeit. There is a needless pain we bear, all because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. He fought his dad. He fought his brother. He fought his uncle. Why? Because he wouldn't fight God. And only as a last resort do we fight God and we recognize that if we fought God, we wouldn't have to fight all that other stuff. Because God wants to bless your life. It's not like God's dangling the, <laughs> the carrot in front of you. <laughs> God wants to bless you. God wants to put his hand of divine presence and power upon your life to give you influence with himself and with other people. God desires that. God prophesies that. God promises that. Yet we feel we got to whoop it up instead of simply taking a knee. And how insulting that we have not because we act, have, we have not because we ask not. So for the rest of our life, we're limping and battle scarred from all the life. And we've got Leah's hanging around in our life. We're stuck with people that are a constant source of irritation because we fail to recognize where the battle really lies. Really, in short, because we're too lazy to pray. We exhaust ourselves in doing a bunch of other stuff. Now get this, hard work never replaces smart work. If I were to go out tonight with an axe handle that has no axe head on it and start whacking away at a tree, I can get all kinds of blisters and I can get all bloodied up and my hands could be calloused and bloodied and everything. And you would say, boy, he's working hard. What a man of God. No, you wouldn't. You'd say, there's an idiot. He needs to have an axe hand. If he had an axe head, he could get that done in relatively ease. And see, what happens is when we take prayer out of our life, we've lost our axe head. Charles Spurgeon said this, and I quote, When I came to the New Park Street Chapel, it was but a mere handful of people to whom I first preached. Yet I can never forget how earnestly they prayed. Sometimes they seemed to plead as though they could really see the angel of the covenant present with them, and as if they must have a blessing from him. More than once we were all so awestruck with the solemnity of the meeting that we sat silent for some moments while the Lord's power appeared to overshadow us. 
Then down came the blessing. The house was filled with hearers, and many souls were saved. I always give the glory to God, but I do not forget that He gave me the privilege of ministering from the first to a praying people. Everyone appeared determined to storm the celestial city by the might of intercession, and soon the blessing came upon us in such abundance that we had no room to receive it, end quote. John Calvin said this, and I quote, We do not fight against him except by his own power and with his own weapons, for he, having challenged us to this contest, at the same time furnishes us with the means of resistance so that both so that he both fights against us and for us, end quote. And as my famous seminary professor Warren Wiersbe told us that night, all alone at the end of his resources, Jacob met God, who forced Jacob to meet himself so that he was prepared to meet Esau. What a great statement. Here's the deal. What stands between you being a conniver and a conqueror is communion with God. I repeat that. What stands between you being a conniver and a conqueror is communion with God. Is your hope in God? I mean, that's our theme, is it not? Is our hope really in God? Or do we really think that God needs our strategy? Do we really think that God needs our whatever? Please understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that your church should not have a website, shouldn't have a street sign, shouldn't have a blog, shouldn't have anything. But I'm saying, ladies and gentlemen, we could never trust in those things to be the salvation of anything. The danger in a ministry like this and in any ministry is this. When this pastor and his dear wife came to this congregation, they knew they needed God. Because it was clearly obvious if anything was going to happen here, God was going to have to do it. And you know what? When they got down on their knees and they begged God for the blessing, God showed up and God was God. But you know, now that we've got solvent finances and now that things aren't in the dire straits, do you really think we don't need them anymore? Oh, that would be a terrible misnomer, would it not? The first time I was asked to preach, I was 12 years old. I was preaching at a nursing home. That's a great place for a 12-year-old boy to preach, to preach to people that can't hear. I went to the local Christian bookstore. I got a Herschel Ford outline book, and me and Herschel Ford preached a great sermon that afternoon. You ought to have been there. I got to this where I didn't have a clue what I knew what I was doing. I needed God. I got down on my knees and said, God, I don't have a clue what I'm doing here. God, if this is what sermon's going to be preached, you're going to have to appreciate God. I need you. Well, shoot. I've had homiletics now and hermeneutics, and I've got to earn doctorates and blah, 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 blah. Hey, listen to me very carefully. I need God now just as much as I need him as a 12-year-old boy. I conclude with this. Little boy's in his daddy's arms in the pool, and his daddy starts walking towards the deep end. 
As the daddy starts walking towards the deep end, the little boy holds tight to his dad and clings tight to his dad. But what the little boy doesn't recognize is that he was over his head in the shallow end. The daddy's just bringing him to the deep end so he'll recognize he's in over his head, but he's always been in over his head. May I say to you that when the alarm clock went off this morning, you were in over your head. So was I. Living's too hard for any of us. We need the Lord. But sometimes God has to bring us into deep waters. God has to throw the hip out of joint. God has to prove to us that we can't stand without him so that we'll cling all the more tightly to him because without him, as he said, we can do nothing. The problem we face is that we want to do it by our strategy. The pain we feel is so that we'll hug tightly to him. And the prize that we find is that when we finally do wrestle with him, we discover we have influence that we never thought we'd have before because we allowed God to do what only God can do. If God has used this ministry in any way to be a blessing to you, please take a moment to send us an email to info at opendoornj.org. Also, if you would like to support this ministry financially, you can do so online at opendoornj.org. Thanks for tuning in.